In the show, we talked to the science journalist, Caroline Williams, about her new book, Move, the science of body over mind, and the remarkable ways in which movement can transform aspects of our well-being and performance. Hi, friends. Welcome back to the Evolving Leader Podcast. I'm Scott Allender. And I'm John Gomes. How are you doing, Scott? Uh, I'm feeling really good today. It's been a very, very busy week, but in all the good ways, um, feel like a lot of productivity is happening right now in the last couple of weeks, and that always feels good when you have a sense of progress going on in your life. So how are you feeling? I'm feeling jealous of you because you're going on holiday next week mm. um, to California. But apart from that, I'm feeling really good. Um, obviously, there is a lot going on in the world at the moment, which we're not going to talk about today. That is, yeah. um, I'm just fighting back. Uh, at the moment. But uh, other than that, I'm very grateful for everything that's uh, that's good in my life right now. So, mm. Scott, would you like to introduce our guest? Yes. Um, I would love that honor because I really, really, really loved her book. Uh, I've been looking forward to talking with her all week. So, uh, and I know you have as well, because uh, you mentioned to me more than once what you, how much you got out of that book. So today our guest is Caroline Williams, author of Move, The New Science of Body Over Mind. Caroline originally planned to be a PE teacher, but ended up studying biology because she found the science aspects of PE more interesting than the team sports. She's also the author of Override and is a consultant and writer for New Scientist. She has spent several years researching the links between movement and the mind. Caroline likes to improve her mood by cycling down bumpy hills, which I want to ask her about. Caroline, welcome to The Evolving Leader. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. Welcome to the show, Caroline. Before we jump into your work, how are you feeling today? I'm feeling pretty good today. It's a shame that it's not a nice day outside my window. My plan for today was to um, knock off work early and go paddleboarding down at the coast, but uh, it turned out to be too wet, too windy. Um, and so it's mostly been a non-paddleboarding, non-beach day, which is a shame. But, you know, the weekend's coming, so plenty of time. to Actually, I will be going riding down bumpy hills, so I can tell you all about that. <laughs> Excellent. Well, well, we'll circle back on that, I'm sure. So you, as we know, uh, our familiar guests, that the evolving leader, uh, we've been speaking to a number of guests in different dimensions about bodily awareness, how our emotions are constructed, in part through interoception, which are the signals that are coming through our bodies. So supremely fascinated by this growing body research on the brain-body connection and its implications for self-awareness and leadership. But let's, let's perhaps start with what drew you into studying movement and perhaps a high-level overview of what you have learned? Yeah, well, sort of a long time after I sort of thought about being a PE teacher and then stopped being a PE teacher, I, I sort of um, became a science journalist because I'm one of those weird people that at university like to sit in the library reading about stuff and then writing about stuff. So I kind of, you know, one day I thought, oh, I wonder if there's a job that involves doing this. And it turns out science journalism is the thing. Um, and for most of my career, I've been most interested in the human mind and why we think and feel the way we do and and how we can get the best out of our brains which are just incredible bits of kit they're the most complicated objects in the known universe and we still don't know exactly how they work but so I wanted to look at what the science can tell us about how to get the best out of our brains and also how to sort of navigate the glitches that seem to come as part of the system. So, you know, anxiety, creativity turning up at really inconvenient times, um, you know, a lack of focus. So all these sort of areas 
to improve on, I sort of was looking at it from the perspective of the brain. And then it sort of occurred to me one day that my own brain, my mind seems to work best when my body is on the move. And I started thinking, well, I wonder if there's anything in that. What, what, what's that all about anyway? And wonder if there's any research that is more than just, oh, well, exercise equals endorphins equals feeling good. And it turned out there was loads. So, um, you know, everything going from cell biology up to neuroscience and sports physiology in between. And, you know, there was just this vast uh, body of research and nobody seemed to really know much about it, including me. So I I sort of dove into it and and that's where MOVE came from. Mm. So you point to the fact that, you know, our whole brain's purpose really is to enable movement. Um, and, And you're touching on it now that, you know, movement... Uh, you know, affects our mindset, how we feel and how we think. And But the way we live and work for many of us today is all very sedentary. Uh, what are the implications of that, not just on our on our health, but in all areas? Yeah, they're, they're quite scary, actually. When you sort of look at it, you know, there's these statistics that suggest that, you know, the average adult spends 70% of our time not moving at all. And, you know, as you get into older age, age groups, that's even larger proportion um and the implications of that are seemingly pretty serious so Mm. when you look at you know the long-term effects on the brain obviously some decline is inevitable as we get older but looking at the state of people's brains over long periods of time the rates of decline in you know areas to do with memory and cognitive function decline faster the more sedentary a person has been through their lifestyle and 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 something like 13% of alzheimer's cases can be traced to a sedentary lifestyle which actually terrified really? me yeah so so i mean i'm not saying that people who have alzheimer's have done something wrong and that they haven't moved enough but there is this lifestyle element that you know given that our lifestyles are so sedentary we can you know counteract that to some extent so there's other other data that suggests that maybe declines in IQ over a, a lifespan and also at the population level. So IQ has been rising for decades since we've been measuring IQ. And then from about the year 2000, that trend started to slow down and then go into reverse. And it's not really clear why exactly, but given what we know about movement and sedentary lifestyles and the effects on the brain, it's not too much of a stretch to think that sedentary lifestyles play at least some part in that. Um, then there's, you know, the rise of anxiety um, and other mental health conditions. We know that exercise and, and especially strength strength exercises have a really positive impact on anxiety, make you feel more self-confident, more resilient. So the fact that we're not doing these things suggests that there are important um, there are important things that we should be doing that we're not doing, and so so and there are good body, brain, mind reasons why that's happening. One of the first things I underlined in your book was uh, you said the ability to you know imagine things that have never been mentally to travel back and forth in time to learn from the past and to plan for the future is very much a human special speciality. So, and it all comes down. Uh, to what uh, Rodolfo Linus calls the evolutionary internalization of movement. So you're talking about all the implications of sedentary lifestyle. I'm really curious about the evolutionary benefits, especially the strength piece, because that was a surprise to me. I understand, I think, the walking, but the strength yeah. piece was was new. Yeah. Can you, yeah, can you underline that too. for him, uh, Caroline, because we're trying to get Scott to do some exercise. Yeah. So I've been, I've been <laughs> resisting it, him. but... 
Yeah. <laughs> okay, I'll do my best. So um, just to start with the evolutionary picture. So the, the Rodolfo Linas um, analogy of the C-square is a really, really powerful one. So we often think that brains are there to think clever thoughts um, and where, you know, yay us, aren't we amazing? We've got these amazing brains and we think clever thoughts with them. But when you look back in evolution to the point when nature was deciding whether brains were even worth the effort because they take a lot of upkeep, you know, they're, they're energy intensive bits of kit. There was a point in evolution when nature was going, oh, I don't know, is it worth it? Is it not worth it? And it came down to whether or not the creature was moving. So these creatures see squirts when they're in their adult form, they basically are sort of two rubbery bags, you know, with two tubes sticking out and they pull in water through one and they spit it out through the other. And they just kind of filter feed their way through life and, you know, don't do very much. In their juvenile form, they're sort of more like tadpoles. And so they swim around the ocean um, looking for the best place to spend the rest of their lives. And to do that, they have a very simple brain, which they use to move away from danger and towards things that are potentially rewarding. And Lina says, well, that is what brains are for. Therefore, informing our movements in the world to increase our chances of survival because they take us towards rewards and away from danger. Um, and he, he had this great quote. He said, movement's too dangerous to attempt without a plan. So, you know, <laughs> moving around without a brain might end badly. But with the, with the sea squirts, as soon as they've selected that bit on the ocean floor, they glue themselves on by their heads. And the first thing they do is they reabsorb almost their entire nervous system. They never have any more decisions to make. So mm. they just figure, I don't know whether they figure it out or not, whether it just happened through evolution, that whole thing goes in the recycling and they never think they never make a decision again. Um, and so this was Linas's way of saying, that's what brains are for. Brains are not for thinking, they're for moving. And everything that's been bolted on after that, from emotions to, to cognition, everything is just improving those decisions we're making about how we interact with the world and how we move around in it. Oh, that makes total sense for Scott. When he finds a bag of donuts, he never moves again, at least for... <laughs> well, you, are you calling is... me a sea squirt? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's not quite so simple that if we do sit down and eat donuts, then our brain no. gets reabsorbed. <laughs> but, you know, there, there was another point in evolution that was a crunch point where humans started hunting and gathering. We started moving around on two feet and, and it was advantageous to us to be able to travel long distances. But also to think better because you can't, you know, humans are quite puny creatures, really. You know, we're not very strong, we're not very fast. We have to work together if we're going to bring down large game and, and not get skewered in the process. So at this point in our evolution, the ability to move and, and kind of go long distances was tied together with the function of our brain. And this explains why when we exercise, the brain invests in new connections and new neurons and new blood vessels, the whole thing just starts working better. And that sort of got tied together in our physiology a really long time ago. And so now it's sort of non-negotiable. So if we move, mm. the brain invests. If we don't, it makes energy savings. So let, let's try and connect the dots with this and decision-making because we're particularly fascinated with improving decision-making. You've uh, written a very interesting uh, chapter all about breathing and related exercises to improve that. And you, you also cite a, a 2016 study that shows that we can synchronize our breathing with our brain waves. It has a, a massive impact on, on, on our capacity to do this. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? 
Yeah, I mean, it's not even that we have to do anything to synchronize our breathing to our brainwaves. It's almost, some researchers think it's like a basic feature of how the brain works. And this goes back to information about moving in the world again. So when we breathe in through our nose, information is coming in with that air about how safe or otherwise the world is to move around in. And so evolution has has built in this system whereby the rate of our breath going in and out of our nose sets up brain waves um, that then the way that the brain um, puts different bits of information together from all over the place, from different brain regions, is that they hop onto the same wavelength frequency. And it's a bit like, say you, you imagine you're in a, a very loud stadium and there's a lot of hubbub and a lot of noise. If a chant gets going, you can hear that above everything else because it's all coming at you know the same rhythm, the same uh, frequency. And so that's what basically what happens in the brain. So this, this sort of breathing into the nose lets other bits of the brain come online on the same frequency. So we add meaning to that information with, you know, the um, the memory of whether we've encountered it before and, and whether it was something that was good or bad or, or indifferent. And so by breathing through your nose, what you're doing is tethering your brain waves um, to the rate of your breath. And so the beauty of being humans is you can reverse engineer this system. And if you could choose to slow down your breath and the sweet spot at six breaths per minute, seems to calm the whole system down and and sort of it gets more oxygen into your blood it's um it's the calmest you know when people you ask people to breathe at different rates and how does it feel it's the calmest they prefer breathing at that rate it feels natural and it stimulates the vagus nerve which takes the whole nervous system down to a state of calm um, and you can go further you can go to three breaths per minute if you really um practice it's not easy to do without falling asleep but that takes you into a, a completely altered state of consciousness where you're just sort of being um and not thinking uh which sounds lovely but I've, i tend to fall asleep too easily so i've never actually mm-hmm. managed three breaths per minute so what what have you um you know learned for yourself in this whole process to help you you know write better and and retain information what have you taken on board in your life well i think the major thing has been that I think we tend to think nowadays that we do our best work when we're sitting at our desks and we're working hard and we are at work and that's what we're doing and that's where we are. Whereas, you know, there's a lot of research now that shows thinking on the move boosts creativity and helps you focus and, you know, the walking stuff, there's different ways, different rates you can walk, you know, a slow meander helps sort of turn down the sort of more rational thinking bits at the front of the brain and and lets the mind wander. If you want to pump it up a little bit, 120 steps per minute synchronizes with the heartbeat and gets a rush of blood to the brain. And then you might feel more alert and more focused. So what has really changed for me is that if I'm stuck on something, I don't sit banging my head off the desk going, I need to be here. I've got a deadline. I will down tools, go for a walk and and trust that that is still work. It's not skiving and that it will actually in the long run um, be a better thing. So I think that's a really important thing that we need to do. I don't have a boss. I haven't had a boss for 20 odd years, but even I need to tell myself that that's okay. So I think that's something that, you know, we need to have a slight shift of thinking in work to take movement breaks, um, that it's okay if you've got a talk, a presentation to give, that you disappear out of the office for an hour, because that's probably far more effective than sitting at your desk and fielding emails and calls and and what have you. Yeah, I've experienced that uh, since COVID, this sort of, you know, being online, sort of sat in front of a computer trying to 
you know, be creative with a team has been been more challenging. And and since kind of coming back to the office, you know, it's re-stimulated and re-energized me when I've been able to be in a room and get on the whiteboards and do all that kind of stuff. But now that we're many, many jobs are now in this sort of either permanent remote or hybridized kind of way of working. What are what are some maybe what's some advice you would give to leaders listening right now about how to ensure that their team and them are adopting movement practices in order to get the best imagination out of them and the, and the most productivity they can. I think, I think the knowledge is, is the, is the first thing and to make it okay as, as the leader of the team, because it's all very well, somebody reading my book and going, Oh yeah, science says I should go for a walk when I'm, when I'm brainstorming. But if you feel like your boss is going to frown upon that, you're not going to do it. So it sort of has to come from above, I think. And I think some, mm-hmm. in some ways, um, you know, remote working has some people seem to have worked that out because I spend a lot of time walking my dog around the local woods and you see loads of people out there for an afternoon walk or whatever with their ear pods in just, you know, having a meeting on on foot. And so I, I'm hoping that, you know, in some ways it's stimulated more movement in a way because people can't see you. They can't see what you're doing. Um, that you go actually you're freer to do it. And, you know, my husband usually commutes to London since working remotely he's been sort of getting up and instead of the commute going for a swim in the morning so I think there are all these ways you just have to seek it out I think that's the trouble because the temptation Mm. is to get out of bed sit at your desk you know dress from the waist up and and not move (laughs) for the rest of the day and then slump on your sofa but there are more opportunities but I think yeah the key is to make it okay and to make that culture exist where it's get up stretch your legs you know rather than doing back-to-back-to-back meetings where people are sitting in the same place you know not even having to change meeting rooms that those kind of breaks are built into the day and, and made and made to be you know normalized. I know you've been studying this for a long time, but was there anything in your research for the book that really surprised you that you thought was either counterintuitive or you just thought, no, I've never thought of that before? Yeah, I mean, there were loads of things that surprised me. The, the strength of the connection between physical strength and um, self-esteem, confidence, resilience, that really surprised me because, you know, the research is so strong. It's been going, you know, since back in the 80s, that if you take a group of people and you increase their physical strength by, in one case, sort of, a, sort of 20, 40%, then they start to feel more confident about things that have nothing to do with being strong or fighting or, you know, defending themselves or anything, just difficult conversations, you know, showing up to work and feeling like you deserve to be there. Um, that all becomes a lot more manageable. And this goes back to the interception thing again, because Part of that is your body getting unconscious updates about the state of your bodily equipment. So, you know, how strong are your muscles? How agile are you? Um, how are the bones doing? And if you improve your strength, then those messages change. And so it, mm. you can think of it as sort of like a background music level in your mm. life. Um, so whether that background movement is a little bit sort of like scratchy and, you know, a little bit you know, terrifying and something bad is about to happen or whether it's go get it, you know, sort of rousing music can be, can be changed by improving your physical strength. Um, And that was something that I hadn't really um, understood before. And it's something that I think a lot of people neglect, you know, everyone knows you need to get cardio fit and that, Mm. you know, all these 
you know, there are various ways and yoga for calmness and everything, but just physically increasing your strength can just give you this totally different outlook on life where life feels a lot more manageable. Um, I think is a really important thing. And that did surprise me. Mm, so interesting. You also look at the way in which trauma victims um, and the effect of movement. And you mentioned one study about first responders at 9-11. Mm. Um, can you talk to us about that? Yeah, this was an interesting study because it showed that um, 10 years after 9-11, people who had been first responders, who you would probably think, given that their job was firemen, police officers, they were probably more physically fit than average, or at least as physically fit. Um, 10 years down the line, they were significantly weaker than a matched control group of people who, who hadn't been first responders. And it was a link between trauma and their physical strength and their ability. Think, you know, just simple tests like how quickly can you get out of a chair, that, that sort of thing, um, which suggests that, you know, that this is a two-way thing. Trauma can weaken the body, but then on the plus side, physical strengthening exercises and exercise in general can help people deal with trauma. And there's been some interesting studies starting. Um, there's a, a group in Australia who, uh, Simon Rosenbaum is his name, and he's working with refugees who um, may not have access to uh, exercise classes. And, and they're, they're bringing this um, community centre alive where people can come in and do exercise. And they're finding, you know, they're studying how they get on. And the initial results are really, are really promising. So we know that strengthening can, can help recovery from trauma. We also know that trauma can weaken the body. So this link is, is a really interesting one that we just need to, um, to bear in mind and, and, and help people feel strong from the inside. So it's a different mm. approach from nearly everything we hear about physical fitness and strength, which is all about, you know, get your muscles looking a particular way, you know, get your abs looking a particular way. It's not about that. It's about doing it for how it makes you feel and how it changes your life. And I think that's way more powerful. I think it's a message that needs to, to get out there for sure. That, that does make sense on lots of levels. And we had a neuroscientist, um, Mark Soms, talking to us about consciousness and the sense of self and that his belief is that it's feeling, physical feeling, rather than the, the higher orders of, of the brain functioning that are the root of consciousness. So if you are getting those signals from your body, those interoceptive signals, that sense of self is telling you that you are strong, that's going to make a massive difference to your sense of who you are in the world. Absolutely. And yeah, this, there's a lot of people now, I think, coming around to this idea that we build our sense of self on bodily signals. And so you know, we don't think us, we don't think who we are. We, mm. we sort of build that from a picture of mm. all the information coming from the body. So, yeah, I mean, that's why I think it's really exciting, this research, um, that you can change a lot. You can use your body as a tool almost to change the way you think and feel and how you approach life in general. And, and I think it's something that's really, really powerful. I think... Um... You know, I helped my dad to increase his movement and strength, um, things like squat, squats exercises in his 70s. And I think it gave him probably at least another 10 years of, of useful life. What are we learning about um, elderly physical action? Yeah, I mean, it's a tricky one. You know, so elderly people spend 80% of the time um, inactive and often for very good 
reason you know mm. things do decline and with the best will in the world you know my own mother um used to be a fitness instructor and she has a condition where her movements have um it's to do with a part of the brain that coordinates movement. So she's very unsteady. She falls a lot. You know, she's not able to do the stuff she used to do. So there are often, you know, mm. reasons why you can't get active. But she's also a bit of a warrior who um, puts me to shame when you go shopping for for hand weights and things and sort of <laughs> sneers at my two and a half kilos and goes, ha, I'll have the five kilos. So it's a case of sort of doing whatever you can. Um, and... And also whatever makes you feel good. So whatever, you know, it may be that someone's been a dancer and they maybe can't dance like they used to, but just any movement to music um, can really boost movement and boost mood and help you feel connected to, to people for, for all kinds of reasons that I can go into in, in detail if you want me to. But, um, you know, and whether it's strengthening, whether it's core exercise, um, there's a lot that you can do without necessarily being that mobile. And I think it's something that, um, that there's quite a lot of work going on. I mean, one of the guys I spoke to in the book, a guy called Terry Kvaznik, he, um, he told me he used to do breakdancing sessions with, with elderly people. And I'm not quite sure how that worked, but he said <laughs> they loved it. <laughs> he was doing all these tricks and they were just doing what they could from where they were sitting. And, um, and it went down a storm. So there's a lot you can do, I think. And it's a, a really important uh, group of people. It's one where we can get the biggest improvements in well-being and, and you know, not just lifespan, but good lifespan. Mm. What are your favorite movements and why do you like riding down bumpy hills? Let's come back to that. <laughs> well, I, I like riding down bumpy hills because it makes you just shout, wee, and, and it's fun, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, and there, but there are reasons for that. So um, there was some very interesting research I came across where um, the balance organs of the inner ear are linked to the limbic system of the brain, which is the sort of the emotional processing center. So when that sort of explains why when we're about to fall over, it, it, we feel excited and exhilarated, especially when we don't fall over. And this is one of the ideas behind why we love dancing. Um, it makes us feel good because we're throwing ourselves off balance and catching ourselves. And it's a bit like how a joke makes us, you know, sets up expectations and then pulls the rug rug out from under us that, you know, almost falling, but not falling and catching yourself feels mm. good. So um, that's the neuroscience idea for why I love cycling down bumpy hills. But um, I just that's do. Cool. It's just really fun. <laughs> <laughs> that's it. why it's kind of like vertigo. It's that feeling of almost falling off, off something, but yeah. knowing you're not going to do it. It's a uh... Exactly. And it makes me sound much more extreme than I am because um, I had my husband take a picture of me going down what I thought was quite an extreme bumpy hill. And actually, I just looked like a <laughs> middle-aged lady poodling along on a bike. But to me, in my head, it was really thrilling and extreme and it was really fun. So again, do it for how it makes you feel and uh, forget the Instagram mm. post. <laughs> what, what else is um, uh, catching your imagination in the moment in terms of new research? Um, I'm really interested in the connections between uh, core strength and the stress system because one of the things that's always bugged me about you know brain-centric ways of dealing with stress is that there are variations on a theme of just 
don't be stressed. Think about mm. it. You know, you've no reason to feel that way. Your feelings are wrong. Think them through and you will do it a different way. And that's all very, all very well, but it doesn't really work. You know, if you're feeling mm. anxious and stressed, you know, that, that doesn't really work. And even if it does, it doesn't stop the stress in the first place. So there is, um, there's a whole load of psychological research about, I'm sure a lot of your listeners will know about the power posing stuff from Amy Cuddy that, yeah. you know, an expanded posture can make you feel more powerful. And Amy Cuddy got, a bit, a bit of a bad rap, I think, personally, um, because other research has backed up the idea that posture matters for how you feel, how powerful you feel, how stressed you feel. But I think the thing that that didn't um, stand up to scrutiny was the link she made between those postures and an increase in testosterone and a decrease in cortisol, which is a stress hormone. So that hasn't been replicated. And so, but her research got sort of canned as a result of that unfairly, I think. But so they're still, we're still looking for this mechanism for why posture matters. And we, we know that it does matter through lots and lots of experiments. And new research has traced the wiring diagram in the body, the neural circuitry between the adrenal glands, which sit on top of the kidneys and trace that back to the brain to see where it ends up, where these connections are. And they turn up in a part of the brain, the motor cortex, which tells the body, you know, so it informs motor movements. It gets the body moving. And so this is sort of like an Alice bandler across the top of your head and the different parts of it uh, represent different parts of the body. Most of the connections from the adrenal gland turned up in the part of the motor cortex that informs movements of the core. So there's something about movement, one, and there's something about movements of the core that is linked to our stress system. Um, and th the research that's been done so far can't say for sure which way, you know, messages are flowing. But given that we know that being upright makes us feel more in control and, um, and that when you give people a stressful task to do, and then measure their heart rate and their sweaty palms afterwards, they recover more quickly if they've been upright than if they've been slumped. It would suggest that the core muscles and movements of them are important for stress control. So this mm. is a really interesting uh, area of research. That I'm really kind of um, keen yeah. to see what happens next with this research, because, you know, if we have a, a mechanism, then, I mean, even, even if that's not the mechanism, if something else turns up, then it's something you can put into practice really, really easily. You know, you can reverse engineer this again. You can rather than you can notice that you're slumped and that you're feeling awful. And if you need to feel better, that you can you can change your posture. And that might tell your stress system via your brain that stand down, it's under control, everything's going to be okay. So so it's kind of using your body as a tool again to to kind of get things under control and not have to think your way through it. So um, that's something, it, it kind of resonates with me anyway. It makes yeah. a huge connection to another of our guests' work, um, Lisa Feldman Barrett on the mm -hmm. constructed emotion and, you know, the idea that we construct emotions to make sense of our body budget in the environment. So and yeah. how we feel, you know, if we're feeling an anxious, you know, that's a, a meaning-making mechanism that's connected into our body. So that yeah. I can see how all of this links together. Yeah, and then it goes round again, and then the, yeah. then the emotion sets off, you know, more, you know, it, it's kind of a constant cycle, but we can intervene in the cycle and, and change the body messages at least. Um, and that's one thing that's so, um, I've written quite a lot since the book about interoception, and there's been various studies looking at it um, to intervene simply in the heart rate to dampen down um, 
symptoms of PTSD. So because just the the elevated heart rate keeps this whole cycle going and it's not the thing that's making you anxious or scared. But if you just take one bit out of the equation, then then that can help settle things down. So it's finding where the the easiest take is to short circuit the kind of cycle that's going on. So, Mm. um, yeah, it's a really, really interesting area of research. Hi, Phil Kirby here, producer of the Evolving Leader podcast. Since starting the podcast, we've had so many incredible guests who graciously agree to give up their time to come and talk to hosts John and Scott. One such guest in season three was Kevin Kelly, founding executive editor of Wired magazine and former editor of the Whole Earth Review. 25 years ago, he wrote new rules for the new economy. But where are we now and what will 2050 look like? I'll add a link in the show notes. Can you tell us about what you learned about osteocalcin? So, um, yes. So this is something else that surprised me because who knew that our bones were secreting hormones? I, I didn't. Um, so, you know, we tend to think of bones as these dry sticks that, that hold up our bodies, but actually they're living tissue and they're constantly being built up and broken down depending on whether we put weight on them and tax them or whether we're just sedentary and we don't necessarily need as much bone. Um, so it's a use it or lose it organ again. But there's a hormone called osteocalcin, which is released when we put weight on our bones and challenge them to, to beef up a little bit. And it has, but this hormone has nothing to do with actually physically building the bones up. Um, what it does is it travels through the blood and goes to the brain where it ha- interacts with the hippocampus, which is a part of the brain that is involved in memory. And uh, animal experiments suggest that without this osteocalcin, um, then mice, mice can't get around a maze. Um, they're a little bit confused. Um, and there's some evidence coming through that in people with cognitive decline, osteocalcin levels decline. And the miserable news is that from about middle age onwards, you naturally have less of this stuff. So to get enough of it to keep your brain going, weight-bearing exercise uh, of any kind, whether it's lifting weights, whether it's getting on your feet and walking, running, you know, whatever, um, is really important, not only to maintain your bones, but to maintain the messages that your bones are then sending to your brain to keep you healthy. So um, yeah, it's a, that's another really interesting area that's, that's worth looking at because they're looking at things like dementia and whether you mm. can maybe potentially um, intervene early on in the process with osteocalcin. So, so it's kind of, it's, it's another area that's really, really new, but really interesting uh, to keep an eye on. So I love this because when when you, um, when you, when you hear these things, I mean, you've got this generic message of exercise is good for your brain and, and so on. But when you actually picture, visualize your bones secreting something that are telling mm. your brain to remember and you know yeah. that, that's a really powerful image that we could all yes. kind of keep in yeah. our minds isn't it and the researcher who um who, who kind of found this work a guy called gerard carsenti he's in new york he's a french guy he started off his career desperately wanting to know why what happens when your bones get stronger and he was desperately thinking oh this osteocalcin this is going to be the key to bone building and he spent 20 years trying to work it out and he's like no it isn't it isn't but if we get rid of it the animals get really stupid and anxious. Mm. Um, and if we give it back to them, they're fine. And so this whole sort of side area of research came out, but he actually takes it all back to this sort of moving for survival thing. He said, you know, if you need to move, if you're moving away from stuff, um, then you need to be strong. So the kind of, the th- you also need to be able to think 
how you're going to get out of this situation and remember the lessons you've learned for next time. So these things are all connected again to having a strong body brain. I mean, it, it sort of surprised me as well how much it surprised me that our hmm. brains are so attached to our bodies. I mean, why wouldn't they be? They're, you know, they're complete, <laughs> there's, there's, you know, miles and miles of pipework and wiring and everything. So, so this kind of new view of our bodies is it all working together body brain mind the whole thing it's all one beautiful system and um yeah we need to look after the lot let's let's uh let's come back for a moment if we can to simple movement of walking and john mm. john mentioned his dad having uh, extended quality of life through certain movements and i'm thinking of my grandfather who lived to be 95 and, and probably 92 those years were quite quality because he went on like a three mile walk by himself sort of every day until he wasn't able to do it and there's a lot of different, you know, everybody's saying get your 10,000 steps and some people say you don't need that much or you maybe need more than that. What's the sort of ideal amount of walking and you know, how should people be approaching that with intentionality? Yeah, so the 10,000 steps is an interesting one because it turns out that it doesn't come from research at all. It comes from um, a Japanese pedometer country company who in the 90s you know ha had as part of their marketing campaign 10,000 steps was the thing uh -huh. and part of the reason is well we think the part of the reason was that um it's an easy number to remember nice round number 10,000 steps but also because the Japanese kanji character for 10,000 looks a little bit like a person walking so it's kind of it's, <laughs> it's sort of delightfully random in a way that you know let's just go with 10,000 they'll go with that and it's really stuck but you know there are studies of modern hunter-gatherers of which there are a few populations around the world and there's one group the Hadza in Tanzania that have been studied quite extensively and they've put um, trackers on them to see how many steps a day they do and the men tend to go for about 16,000 steps and the women more like 8,000 so I mean they're doing a lot more walking than pretty much everybody but you know so I guess 10,000 isn't too much of a, a bad target to aim for um, I still get a buzz out of getting my 10,000 steps. So it's not a bad target to aim for. But I mean, essentially, the less you're doing, the less you need to do to improve things. So whatever mm. whatever you can manage to fit in, more is usually better. Um, so, yeah, just just doing it as much as possible, I think, is is, is the main message. Little, little and often, you know, it doesn't all have to be in one go. So one of the other interesting things with the research is that um, the rate of decline over many years of the brain is linked to the amount of time you spend sedentary during the day, regardless of whether you do like an intense period of exercise. So it's not about not really. doing more exercise necessarily, although exercise is great. I'm not going to say don't exercise, but it's not about you know, fitting in another spin class or going out for another run. It's about breaking up those sedentary periods during the day. So um, there's this concept of movement snacks where you just get up and you take a little break and it doesn't matter if you walk up and down the stairs or, you know, do some crawling or hang from the door frame or whatever. It doesn't have to be that extreme, but whatever you need, whatever you do, just break up the sitting. Um, and over time, like edible snacks, they tend to add up without you really noticing. And so it can have a benefit. So Scott is going to, Scott and I are on another call after this, and I just wanted to make sure that Scott does some crawling. <laughs> crawling is surprisingly uh, effective. I spent yeah. I spent a weekend with with the MoveNet instructors, um, and they had us crawling around Hackney Park in London, where uh, the dogs were very fascinated by these random people crawling around. But oh my goodness, after one 
morning of that, I couldn't move. I had to go back the next day and I was I was almost dead. But, it, you know, it gets to parts of the core that you didn't really realise you had. That's interesting. Mm. If you crawl to get snacks and then eat the snacks, then I don't know whether they balance <laughs> each other out. <laughs> I was going to say movement snacks sound good if I can snack while moving. That's, movement that's, snacks to that. get snacks. Yeah, that counts. Yeah. <laughs> Final um, thought is what, what, are you, what are you looking at next? What's your next project? I know you're obviously, you know, a... Um, uh, writing continuously for the new scientists, but what what else are you uh, really excited about next? Well, I mean, I'm not finished with movement yet, so I, I kind of got these ideas that I want to do something with it to to actually bring it into the world. You know, it's all very well sitting in my office tapping away and saying, "Come on, people! You know, movement is important because you know I'd like to to tackle some of those groups that it could really benefit. So, children in schools. Um, uh, elderly people, people with mental health um, conditions. I haven't quite worked out how to make it happen because my main skill set is sitting and tapping at my keyboard. Um, but I, I, I am sort of hoping to do something with it. And in terms of finding another book to write, I'm not quite there yet because it has to, it's such an all-encompassing um, part of your life. It's been five years that I've been obsessing and reading and talking about it and boring all my friends about it um, that I haven't found the next thing that's, is that important to me and that exciting and interesting scientifically. So, um, so I'm still banging on about movement. So, so I am writing for new scientists at the moment. I'm writing about um, fascia, which is something we didn't discuss with the, the kind of effects of stretching this body tissue that wraps all, all our muscles and, and, and everything in our bodies, all our organs um, and how this is a biological tissue and it needs movement to uh, keep it healthy and keep, inflammation low so i'm writing about that at the moment so i'm still basically banging on about movement um interception and probably will be for quite some time so yes <laughs> well caroline this has been delightful honestly thank you thank you very much it's been great all right folks be sure to pick up your copy of move today and until next time remember the world is evolving are you are you